This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Tuesday. Daphne, everything okay? I think so. <laughs> All right. MFM, this is uh, uh, the second day of this week. I don't know why I'm saying this. It's so stupid. All right, let's just get into it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Daphne, um, I think you're up. Nope, you're up. <laughs> Oh, you're asking me the question? No, you're asking. Oh, okay. You, you're yeah, asking you, you, the question. You, right? Europe, Europe, meaning I'm we're asking you a question. The same okay, thing. good. <laughs> yes, sorry about that. So we're doing MFM question 10. You are asked to speak with a 30-year-old prima gravida woman who has a history of myasthenia gravis. She's currently in good health and has not required any medication during her pregnancy. She is nearing her estimated date of delivery, and she would like to know what to expect when her baby is born. All of the following statements are true, except. So looking for the incorrect mm-hmm. statement. Choice A, even if asymptomatic, infant born to women with myasthenia gravis should be observed for a minimum of 72 hours to monitor for symptoms. Choice B, the most common presenting symptoms of transient neonatal myasthenia gravis includes generalized hypotonia and poor feeding. Choice C, the severity of neonatal disease correlates with maternal antibody titers and the severity of maternal disease. Choice D, Transient neonatal myasthenia gravis develops in 10% to 20% of infants born to women with myasthenia gravis. Choice E, all of the statements above are correct. Okay. So A, um, A is true. So most babies will be asymptomatic, but we should still monitor them for symptoms. Um, B, that's exactly what we might expect to see in a baby, hypotonia and poor feeding. Um, C, I believe to be incorrect. So, um, the severity of disease, um, doesn't correlate with antibody titers. Um, and then D, is it 10 to 20%? Uh, I guess it could be, but I know that C is wrong. So that means that, you know, E can't be the correct answer. Um, so I'm not sure what the percentage is, but I, C is C is incorrect. Yeah, it's almost like sometimes you're trying to learn from the answer. That's right. Is it? Is it, oh, it? it now? That's nice. <laughs> what an interesting fact. And it's really like, I should really be learning this during my uh, selection of answer choices. Uh, so been there. So yeah, the, the incorrect statement was C, that uh, the severity of disease correlates with maternal antibody titers and the severity of maternal disease. So... There's, there's a few things, I think there's two entities that people need to know about, obviously, because there's congenital myasthenia gravis and there is transient mm-hmm. neonatal myasthenia gravis. So transient neonatal myasthenia gravis is an autoimmune disorder that affects neonates who are born to a mother that has myasthenia gravis. That's the result of intrapartum passage of maternal antibodies across the placenta. And as the answer choice said, 10 to 20% of neonates um, born to a mother with myasthenia gravis are affected by this transient form of myasthenia gravis. The presence of neonatal disease does not really depend on the severity of the maternal disease or the level of the mother's titers. Um, Rather, it's been suggested that the functional ability of the mother's antibodies to bind to the fetal isoform of the acetylcholine receptor plays a role, right? So that's why it doesn't really make sense um, 
doesn't make a, di a difference whether the mother has high antibody titers, symptomatic, because it's the ability of these antibodies to be uh, like snipers, you know, just to mm -hmm. go to that receptor and just m do their damage. Transient neonatal myasthenia gravis is the most common form of myasthenia gravis. And then in contrast, congenital myasthenia gravis is very rare and typically presents later in childhood. The most common symptoms of transient neonatal myasthenia gravis are generalized hypotonia and poor feeding ability. The babies are often symptomatic within 72, hour, 72 hours of birth and therefore uh, require to be observed carefully for that period of time. If they're not, if the babies are not symptomatic by a week of life, clinical disease is then unlikely. And uh, if the symptoms of transient myasthenia gravis are present, most of them, 90%, resolve within two months of life. Um, the other thing that um, I thought was interesting is um, is the fact that myasthenia gravis could lead to fetal arthrogryposis. Mm -hmm. um, which, to be very honest with everybody here, I am not exactly sure how that works in terms of how would the mother with myasthenia gravis lead to a fetal presentation of arthrogryposis. But I thought when I was studying that this is like super testable, mm -hmm. um, where I thought like if somebody wants to write a question, that that could be there. Um, well, anything, any theoretically, any disorder of low tone or poor movement in utero could lead to arthrogryposis. So. That's true. I can actually remember it this way. That's a make, that makes a lot of sense. And then the, the, the last thing I wanted to mention was, what if the symptoms are really severe? Um, would you just watch them? Would you just do symptomatic relief? And there's an option to, to start anticholinesterases, and that uh, includes peridostigmine. So I thought another, um, another I think, tidbit that could, that's easily testable. So yeah. That was question 10, Daphne. Good job. Was yeah, that the other 10? factoid I've seen 10. in other questions, you said that, that most resolve within two months of life. Um, and you told us the symptoms typically are by three days of life, 72 hours. But I thought it was interesting that there was a known mean duration of about 18 days, but can last as long as 15 weeks on, on the um, extreme end. So sometimes that gets asked. Yeah, they add, yeah, that's true. And sometimes they put it in as the as the um, higher end of the range mm -hmm. to see if you know. And we have some questions like that coming up for other diseases, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, question 12. You're asked to evaluate a one-day-old full-term infant whose mother required methadone maintenance during her pregnancy after she stopped taking heroin at 14 weeks gestation. The infant's mother tests negative for hepatitis C, hepatitis B, and HIV and has been compliant with her methadone therapy of 240 milligrams per day. Except for detection of methadone, she has had negative toxicology screens throughout the pregnancy. All of the following statements are true about neonatal withdrawal syndrome except A, potential therapies for the infant include morphine and phenobarbital. B, signs of withdrawal may not appear until one and a half weeks of age. C, the infant may exhibit tremors, diarrhea, and temperature instability as signs of withdrawal. D, the severity of withdrawal is related to the amount of opiate exposure. E, all of the above are true. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so it's funny that we just talked about this. I didn't realize that this was the question, but um, talking about NAS, um, the potential therapies for the infants include morphine and phenobarbital if you've taken care of babies with um, Abstinence syndrome, then you know that these, this is true. 
And then the question, answer B is exactly what we're talking about. Signs of withdrawal may not appear until one and a half weeks of age. And, and as we said, I think the upper range of symptoms for NAS is two weeks, which when I was a resident in mm-hmm. pediatrics, I was like, so what are we supposed to do? Like, we're not going to keep these babies for two weeks. Like, that sounds atrocious for them. Um, so I remember that to be uh, close to the upper range, but not fully the upper range. Um, the answer choice C, uh, babies exib- exhibiting tremors, diarrhea, temperature, instability, like all, that's, all those things are signs of withdrawal. So E was definitely wrong. It's not all of the above. Uh, so then choice D was the last one. The severity of withdrawal is related to the amount of opioid exposure. And um, yeah, so that was incorrect. And it seems to be a theme, right? Where it's like mm-hmm. it, the severity of the symptoms in the mother or the disease in the mother doesn't relate to the severity of the disease in the baby. So I thought- um, yeah. yeah, and that relates to probably placental transfer, which we'll talk about also <laughs> during this mm-hmm. week. Yeah. Um, so neonatal abstinence syndrome, if you've been listening to Journal Club, you know that the the nomenclature is changing a little bit. The where a lot of people are using this NOWS neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, and so this really is technically specific to the opiates. Though we know that lots of medications can present with neonatal withdrawal symptoms. The opiates, um, illicit drugs like cocaine and methamphetamines, heroin. Um, uh, heroin is an opiate, um, but it's part of the illicit drug care category. Um, psychotropic medications, including things that um, are being prescribed during pregnancy, like SSRIs, um, and then the benzodiazepines. So it can present with a range of symptoms, um, depending, again, like on the medication that um, the the infant was exposed, fetus was exposed to. And common symptoms of opiate withdrawal are similar to what's seen in adults. So they have central nervous symptoms, tremors, agitation, hyperactive morose, abnormal tone. Um, they can have GI disturbances, diarrhea, poor feeding, excessive sucking, and autonomic changes, temperature instability, sneezing, and uh, skin color changes like modeling. Right now, the first-line management of um, opiate-related um, withdrawal is morphine. Um, phenobarbital has been used. We actually have put out a lot of recent journal clubs about the, the changing um, kind of uh, medications in uh, withdrawal symptoms. So lots of things are on the horizon. Um, but mm-hmm. at this time, what other things? Clonidine, um Buprenorphine like is used as as an as an adjunct, right? There's right. a lot of uh, yeah. yeah, but so at this point, um, we're still using morphine, and a, a lot of it depends too on uh, is there poly substance use in in using some of these um, other adjunct therapies. Um, so what is the timing? So the timing of withdrawal signs uh, for infants exposed to opiates um, is is variable. Usually um, symptoms present between the third and fifth day of life, but can present up to two weeks of age. And then importantly, the severity of NAS symptoms does not correlate with the amount of uh, drug or duration of intake by the mother. So that's why answer D was incorrect. So the correct statement is that the severity of withdrawal is not related to the amount of opiate exposure, um, though we know that polysubstance abuse, um, polysubstance use can, um, can increase the severity and the length of symptoms. Okay. All right. Um, question 14, Daphna. 
a 45-year-old woman has successful in vitro fertilization, resulting in a twin gestation. In which of the following types of twin gestation is a twin-to-twin -twin transfusion most likely to occur? And you have the three choices. Choice A, dichorionic, diamniotic. Choice B, monodi. Choice C, mono-mono. Yeah, so the, the answer to this is, is modi twins. And I, you will tell us about the pathophysiology. And I think once you understand the pathophysiology, it makes sense why this is the most likely. That is correct. So the answer is monodi um, twin gestation. So what is the incidence? Let, let me, I want to backtrack a little bit before we get into the, the answer. So the incidence of spontaneous twins is one in 80 pregnancies. Now, what is the difference between monozygotic and dizygotic twin uh, gestations? So a monozygotic twin gestation means that you have one egg, one sperm leads to the formation of one embryo that eventually splits into two embryos. And when you have dizygotic, which as the, as the word um, says, die two, so you have two eggs, two sperm leading to the formation of two embryos. Now, you could have um, dichorionic, diamniotic, monodi, monomono. So when you have, um, when you have the, those different types of, of pregnancies, really the timing at which the, uh, there's this split happening, varies. And um, if the split happens before day three, um, then you have dichorionic, diamniotic. And then the later it happens, you have more shared elements. If, you, if it happens between day three to day eight, um, you have 70% chance of having a monodi pregnancy. If it happens after day eight, from day eight to 13, uh, you have mono-mono, and it's very rare. Obviously, that's 1% of pregnancy. Uh, the big risks, obviously, are that are associated with each type of uh, monochorionic uh, pregnancies are that if you're monodi, you can have growth discordance, you can have twin-twin transfusion, and then when you have mono-mono, you could have these really issues of cord entanglement and growth discordance. So going back to the question, twin-twin transfusion, um, when does it happen? It happens when you have these vascular anastomoses within the placenta. Usually, typically, they're deep and arteriovenous connections leading to acute and chronic transfer of blood from one twin to another. So the mother provides the blood for both babies, and some blood is unequally going towards one twin rather than the other. Twin-twin transfusion happens in about 5 to 15% of monodi twins, and even though 85% of these, twin, these twins have vascular anastomoses. So uh, an interesting differentiation here between what truly is at the cause of these twin-twin transfusion syndromes and when they, they actually do happen. Monozygotic twins that are dichorionic, diamniotic, are not at risk for twin-twin transfusion, and that should make sense because they do not share anything. Separate placenta, separate, separate um, uh, amniotic sacs. Twin-twin transfusion may occur in a mono-mono twin gestation, but occurs less frequently than in monodi twins. And I think that's the, the crux of the question is that realizing that you could have twin, you, in di-di twin pregnancies, you cannot have twin-to-twin -twin transfusion. And in the other two choices, monodi and mono-mono, you could have twin-to-twin uh, -twin transfusion. However, it still is higher, it's more likely in the monodi gestations than in the mono-mono. Um, and then we'll talk about the effects on the donor and the recipient, I think, in a different question. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, I think the management, the, I think the one thing we could talk about though, is that um, the management of these twin twin transfusion syndromes are that you do laser reduction where you try to find these anastomoses and just quite like cauterize them. Um, and then in, in, in really, really severe cases, you could do something called selective reduction of a donor twin. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's not as good as not talk about that now. <laughs> Not our favorite topic. No, um, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> the other thing maybe we should mention is the different presentations of twin twin transfusion, um, which um, I think is new to newer to the like the is in the newest edition. Um, so it can present as tops, um, which is exactly what it sounds like. Twin oligopolyhydramnio sequence. So there's a difference in amniotic fluid volumes and fetal hematocrits. Um, seen in Modi twins, um, or TAPS, which is twin anemia polycythemia sequence, um, which um, is a difference just in the fetal hematocrits between twins without um, amniotic fluid differences. Um, so I just think it's important. Those, those would be um, different presentations of the same kind of pathology. Right. Okay. Um, and then if you're um, interested in the stages of twin-to-twin um, transfusion, you can look at the Quintero classification staging system where, um, yeah, basically they go into uh, the various criteria for stage one through five. Perfect. Okay, question 15. The transfer of calcium across the placenta is regulated mostly by the fetus. This transfer is critical for effective intrauterine bone mineralization. Which of the following statements about calcium physiology during the third trimester is most accurate? A, the high fetal calcitonin concentration exhibits a positive effect on fetal bone resorption. B, maternal estrogen negatively affects fetal mineral accretion. C, the fetus and pregnant woman have equivalent serum calcium concentrations D, the fetus is hypercalcemic relative uh, to the pregnant woman. E, the pregnant woman is hypercalcemic relative to the fetus. All right, that's a, that's a, that's a, yeah, this question is tough because <laughs> it's, you can easily get uh, tripped up in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So the thing that um, I remember right off the bat is that obviously most of the calcium that a that a fetus accrues during the pregnancy um, does happen during the third trimester. Um, now, the mechanism by which it happens is basically what the question is asking you. So choice A states that high fetal calcitonin concentration has a positive effect on fetal bone resorption. Um, that that didn't make any sense. Um, just that's not, that's, yeah, that's just made no sense. So I was I was <laughs> confident enough that this, this doesn't make any sense. Um, Right, calcitonin is supposed to lower your calcium level. Mm-hmm. Um, if it lowers your calcium level, you would expect it to go into the bones. Um, why would you have fetal bone resorption? That, that just doesn't make any sense. Uh, B, maternal estrogen negatively affects fetal mineral accretion. And to be honest with you, I wasn't completely sure about that. It, it yeah, I, I didn't think, because I knew that estrogen played a role. I wasn't sure if it was maternal or fetal, so I was a bit confused by that. So I left it B for a second. C, the fetus and pregnant women have equivalent serum calcium concentration. That is false. Choice D, the fetus is hypercalcemic relative to the pregnant woman. And that I knew to be true. 
uh, choice E, the pregnant woman is hypercalcemic relative, relative to the fetus. So we go back to something you've mentioned actually, Daphne, on the podcast where you, they're asking you for an accurate statement mm -hmm. and you have two statements that are directly contradicting each other. Yeah, and One actually, of them has to be true. It, right, and C, right? So C, it has to be C, D, or E because they give right. you all a of the actually, options, right? You're right, you're right. So D and E are actually directly uh, contradictory statement. Choice C is the in-between. So it has to be one of these three. Mm -hmm. So my whole estrogen debate, I was reassured. <laughs> I didn't have to really solve that issue right now. But what I do remember is that I remember this thing from, from board review that the baby is basically stealing the calcium mm -hmm. from the mother. Mm -hmm. um, so the baby technically, there's no gradient. It's not like a mother has tons of calcium and it just flows freely towards the, the baby. No, the baby actively steals the calcium mm -hmm. from the mother. Um, again, which is why it's very important for um, pregnant mothers to take prenatals even after mm -hmm. delivery, right? Um, so that I remember, that's why I picked uh, choice D. Uh, the fetus is hypercalcemic relative to the pregnant woman. Uh, exactly. So D is the correct answer. So you're right about a, a, a number of things. So 80% of fetal mineral <laughs> accretion occurs between 25 and 40 weeks gestation, which is something I like to talk to families about because it makes sense why the preterm infant is so you know deficient and at such risk for osteopenia of, of prematurity. So the placental syncytiotrophoblasts have actually relatively low calcium concentrations, um, exactly like you said. So it requires um, really active transfer across the placenta. So what happens is there's facilitative diffusion um, from the pregnant person to the placenta and then following an active um, ATP-dependent calcium pump transfers calcium from the basal surface to the fetus. So um, when we talk about placental transport. So calcium is one of those big molecules that requires active transport. And so like you said, this enables the fetus to be hypercalcemic relative uh, to the mother, particularly in the third trimester. And you're right, when we talk about the other answers, so calcitonin, I remember tones down your blood calcium because it's mm. um, increasing, it's going into the bone um, and it should have um, a positive effect on um, mineral accretion or bone deposition, not on fetal bone resorption. So that's why A is wrong. And B, when you think about estrogen um, being required to maintain pregnancies, um, it makes sense that having estrogen should positively affect uh, fetal mineral accretion. So estrogen increases over the course of a, of a pregnancy um, you know, it starts uh, right at about four weeks and continues to climb basically through um, term gestation. And so having that estrogen around um, actually um, has a uh, positive effect on fetal mineral accretion. Okay. Okay. Um, do we have time for more or mm -hmm. is that it One for today? more. One more. All right. Okay. Um, Daphna, question 16. Um, a pregnant woman at 27 weeks of gestation is admitted with preterm labor and receives one course of antenatal corticosteroids. When determining the risks and benefits of antenatal corticosteroids, there have been proven reduction in all of the following, except choice A, infant mortality, choice B, hidden ductus arteriosus, choice C, respiratory distress syndrome, choice D, severe intraventricular hemorrhage. Okay. I mean, these are just one of those rote memorization questions. Um, 
And I believe that there has not, we have not shown a, a difference in, in the PDA. So I'm going with B. Yeah, that's correct. So um, antenatal corticosteroids are given uh, if there's a potential for preterm delivery. It's usually done in a um, single course that's effective within 12 to 24 hours of the initial dose. And maximal benefits really uh, garnish that benefit 48 hours after the initial dose that usually lasts for about seven days. There's been some data published on doing a repeat course if uh, a, a mother does not end up delivering. Uh, at within that seven day window and um, and giving a one time rescue dose has been shown to decrease uh, a few things and I'll talk about that. So what are the benefits of a single course? So the benefit of the single course, like you said, it's a, you have to memorize this. It lowers the incidence of respiratory distress syndrome syndrome between 24 to 34 weeks of gestation. It decreases the incidence of intraventricular hemorrhage and necrotizing enterocolitis. Um, now, What's interesting is that you have to remember a few things there, right? The in decreased incidence of respiratory distress syndrome doesn't mean that there's a reduction in BPD. I think there's there's potential for them to put BPD in the answer choices and really try to um, mm -hmm. mess with how you're thinking about this process. So it does reduce the incidence of RDS, but not necessarily BPD. Um, the incidence of PDA in preterm infants has not been impacted. Uh, based on, on the available evidence by the exposure to intrauterine corticosteroids. And um, yeah, so that's why um, all these sensor choices are correct, except the PDA. In the book, in the in the Brodsky Martin book, there's a, an interesting paragraph that talks about repeated weekly prenatal corticosteroids to women. And sometimes this, I, I like this paragraph because it's a, it's a, it's a reminder that uh, more is not always better. <laughs> uh, and so you see that uh, pregnant women who received uh, weekly prenatal steroids showed poor fetal growth, decreased head circumference. Um, they had decreased risk of severe RDS, but they had uh, no effect on BPD, no effect on severe IVH, no effect on PVL or death. Um, so, so yeah, so we don't give weekly. That's why we give the, this, this one course and one rescue dose if it's past seven days since the, since the first course. So yeah, good job. Thank you. Okay. All right, Daphne. We're all set. See you Wednesday. Take care. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphne and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nicupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.